0: All right, good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. And, excuse me, uh, Pastor Largent is out this morning at Brad Rice's church and doing a special service for them. So I'm sure they're enjoying their time together. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to our passage in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 and verses 9 through 12 will be our passage for this morning. We looked at the previous verses in Sunday School. If you would, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 through 12. But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it offers for us. We ask for your spirit to open our minds now to the truths that you would have us to learn, and the ways that each of us can apply your truth to our lives. and pray that your will would be done, that you would strengthen our hearts through your word this morning, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) This passage here uh, in verses 9 to 12 is tied very closely to the preceding one, and you can see that. Uh, by the word, but, uh, at the beginning of verse 9. Peter's been contrasting uh, uh, people's response to the Messiah. Some respond positively to the Messiah. And as we saw earlier, are part of a spiritual house that God is building. Some reject the Messiah and are on the path uh, to spiritual destruction. And so in verse 9, he returns again uh, to those who know Christ as Savior. I'd imagine that most people at some point in life have spent a few moments uh, contemplating what it would be like to be the president of the United States and to live in the White House. Just imagine, you'd get to fly on Air Force One and Marine One, Uh, you'd stay in some of the nicest presidential suites in the country, Uh, you'd have a staff to take care of all the responsibilities of life, They'd have meals cooked for you, and uh, all of your laundry would be done, and the bathrooms would be clean. And I think some moms sitting out here would like that for just a few days, wouldn't you? Uh, You'd have access to powerful and influential people, uh, round-the-clock protection, uh, a good salary, a movie theater in your house. Uh, There's a lot of benefits that come along with that position. I don't imagine that any of us will get there. But this passage is telling us that as God's people, we have a special and privileged position. And many benefits that come along with that. And by the way, not limited to a four-year term or two terms. Uh, Ongoing throughout our lives, we have privileges as God's people. A special position. And that's what Peter begins with in verses 9 to 10. He's going to describe the special position God's people have And then in verses 11 and 12, how the Lord expects us to live as a result. So beginning in verse 9, he's talking about all of God's people. uh, When he says you, this is you plural, everyone who's trusted Christ as Savior. And he's going to list four different descriptions of God's people that we'll consider each one here. Each of these was used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. And now each of these is expanded to all the people of God, to the church, even though you don't see the word church here. Uh, all of us are included in this, these four descriptions. So let's start with the first. You are a chosen generation. Uh, each of these is a, um, uh, two, two words involved here. So the first word chosen is reminding us that we have a special part in God's plan. God had an active role in orchestrating all the events of your life, and providing access to the gospel, and working in your heart, and God was sovereign over all of that. God's attitude towards his people is not a resigned, uh, I guess, so you can be part of the family if you want, there's a little bit of room left for you. That's not God's attitude at all, God, uh, scripture is clear that God has chosen us, and uh, being chosen by God removes any boasting, anything that we've done on our part, and gives God all the glory. reminds Him that we are special to Him. Uh, this same word is used of Christ earlier in this passage, verse 4 and 6. Both of them described Christ as also chosen of God, part of God's plan throughout the centuries. We are a chosen, and then the next word is generation or race, uh, and here we tend to use the word race purely in terms of skin color, but the idea is a, a people group. Uh, the The word here in the original is um, the word that we would derive genocide from, the first part of that word, uh, which is uh, genos or genos, a, a people group. Uh, so you look at people groups around the world, and they are defined by a common language, uh, common customs, or... Uh, sometimes even similar physical appearance, uh, a shared history and geography. Uh, what binds people together, in this case, the chosen generation, is not any of these factors, but it's that we are all part of the people of God. Everyone who knows the Lord as Savior is united through regeneration, through new birth. Uh, all of us are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. All of us are looking forward to the same hope of eternity together. All of us have access to God through prayer. All of us are sinners on the path of progressive sanctification. So we are part of a chosen people, a chosen generation. And if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you are part of this special people group, a chosen race. Second in verse 9 God's people are a royal priesthood. And this came up earlier in Sunday School in verse 5, uh, described as a holy priesthood. Uh, the, the idea of the priesthood of the believer, that we have access to God through Christ. No human mediator is needed. When you have a need, and you need God to answer that, you have a request, you can go straight to God. You don't have to come here to the church building and meet with pastor. And have him go to God on your behalf. You have direct access to God through Christ as a priest. When you have sin to confess, you can go directly to God. You don't have to go through anyone to receive forgiveness of sins. Straight to God on account of what Christ has done. And so we are a royal priesthood. And uh, we're described in verse 5 as offering up spiritual sacrifices, not that atone for sin, uh, but things that honor God in the way that we live. The uh, adjective there then, the royal priesthood, uh, is the idea of royalty or literally a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. Uh, You're a part of royalty. Uh, Probably for most of us, the monarchy with which we're the most familiar is that over in England, the royal family. How do you become part of that family? Well, you're either born into it or you marry into it. And everyone else is excluded. You are part of the family because you have a close connection to the king or to the queen. And so we are a royal priesthood. Because we have a close connection to the king, don't we? Revelation 5.10 describes all of God's people as kings and priests. And in Revelation 20, we're described as reigning with him in the millennial kingdom. Not that we're equal to him by any means, uh, but that he allows us to share in his reign. And so we have a a part of this special group, a, a royal priesthood. We're priests because we have direct access to God. We are royal because we have a connection to the king. Uh, Next in the list here is a holy nation. And the idea of holy has come up in 1 Peter a number of times already. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, that entire passage is about God's expectation for holiness. Uh, Holiness is the idea of being set apart. And... uh, It can carry the idea, uh, actually carries both of these oftentimes, of being a set apart for something in particular and at the same time being set apart from other things. And so I think perhaps one of the better illustrations of this is an outfit that you have acquired for an upcoming wedding. You found the right thing that looks nice and it fits well and you're excited to wear it and it's in your closet and it is set apart or reserved for a special occasion. And when you go out in the back to do some yard work and you're rummaging around for something to wear you don't wear that because that is set apart for something special. You you don't want to defile it. It, You probably may not even wear it to church. You've got it set aside for a special opportunity. And you see both of those aspects, they're set apart to something for a purpose. And involved in that is set apart from anything that will keep it from fulfilling its purpose. And that's all wrapped up in the word holy, being set apart. Uh, Now, sometimes it leans one way or the other uh, in the usage, and I think here it probably has more to do with what we're set apart to. Because all of these terms are who we are, what God has made us as believers. And so we are set apart for a purpose to serve the Lord. We are a holy nation. Uh, And nation here is very similar to that word generation at the beginning of the verse. Uh, A group of people. This is the word, uh, nation is the word ethnos. We get ethnic from that or ethnicity. Uh, A group of people. Uh, Not a reference to a physical nation. This is not Israel. This is a spiritual nation or group of people. Everyone who is part of God's kingdom. Everybody who is united by a common Savior and a common destiny and a common scripture that we base our lives upon. And so as a believer, you have a special position as part of this holy nation. Uh, The fourth term here is a peculiar people. Now, words can change over time, and this is one that has changed. Uh, If you were to go home and say, well, you look quite peculiar today, that's not a compliment anymore. It means you look a little odd. You're a little strange, uh, a little out of place. Uh, That's not the uh, point here at all. This is not eccentricity. Uh, It's not saying we're a little odd. Uh, This word here is the word possession. A people for a possession, Uh, a people that belongs to someone. And who do we belong to? We belong to God, a special possession. If you're going to paraphrase, you might say, a people who are God's special possession. Uh, This same word uh, is translated elsewhere, um, a treasure, a peculiar treasure that belongs to God. Think of something sentimental that you own. Uh might be a copy of the Bible uh, that maybe you've had for quite a long amount of time. Maybe it was a gift from someone, uh, sentimental in some way. Maybe you have notes in it that you've added over the years. Uh, and it has sentimental value that is really irreplaceable. If you lost that item, well, you could buy the same brand and size, but it wouldn't be the same. It is your special possession. It's something sentimental to you and that's how God feels about his people that's how God feels about you you are special to God Uh, by by saving you he made you his special possession all four of these terms that describe our special status as God's people uh, were used to describe Israel in the Old Testament and I'd like to turn to one place where you see several of them uh, in one place Exodus chapter 19 You'll see God, if we go there together, uh, God uses um, uh, three of the four of these in this passage. Uh, uh, The first one, chosen generation, you'll find that in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 20. But in Exodus 19, you'll find three of these. This is not the only place that they all occur. But here's a place where they're together. Uh, Exodus 19 and verse 6. Uh, Not in the same order, but you see them here. It, Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a, here's the first one, kingdom of priests. A liter- that's the same wording as royal priesthood. Uh, that's in 1 Peter 2. Also here in Exodus 19.6, a holy nation. That showed up in 1 Peter 2. Uh, and then in verse 7, the next verse here. or uh, uh, I think it's the verse before actually, verse 5. Uh, Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, see this, peculiar treasure unto me. Same same idea. So three of those were found in that one passage. Uh, All of these in the Old Testament refer to Israel, uh, but now in the New Testament, Peter is applying these to God's people. and not saying that the church has replaced Israel. We know God has promises for them that are yet to be fulfilled. Uh, but that God has opened these up to apply to the church as well, to apply to those who are not physically Israelites, but those who trusted Christ as Savior. And so we are, as 1 Peter 2 says, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for a possession. Now, uh, partway through verse 9, you see the word that. In order that, here's the purpose now. Because we're all of these things... Peter's going to tell us what our purpose is. God has a special purpose for his people. And he says that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Showing forth is this idea of proclaiming something or declaring something similar to an advertisement or an ambassador. And we're familiar with both of those in our world. An advertisement is portraying the item or the service as um, in the best possible light, to get people to sign on, to purchase, to be involved, an ambassador travels around and represents something, a company, a product, with the goal of convincing others to to join or to make a purchase. And so we are showing forth or proclaiming the what God has done for us, and in particular, the word used here is the praises of God. This word shows up three times three other times in the New Testament, and every other time it's translated virtue. Uh, Philippians 4.8, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise. That's the same word of, uh, that's here in uh, 1 Peter 2.9. Um, 2 Peter 1, when he says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. That's the same word here. Uh, the idea here is um, moral excellency, or maybe we could say who God is and what God has done. Everything true about God. What are you supposed to be proclaiming and showing forth to others? Everything that's true about God. Who God is, his character, that's beyond our comprehension. God's omniscience and his self-sufficiency and his loving kindness and faithfulness and on and on and on. And also the emphasis here, what God has done for you. The excellence, the virtue of what God has done for you And described at the end of verse 9 as calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The darkness is used here, as many other places in scripture, as a picture of life without God. Life without God is very dark. There's spiritual blindness and confusion, aimlessness. You can't see where you're going. Ephesians 4.18 says that the understanding is darkened and we're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance in us because of the blindness of our hearts. Uh, Isaiah 9.2 describes people who are walking in darkness and dwelling in the shadow of death. And before Christ, life is dark. It's hopeless. It's aimless. There's emptiness. There's no purpose. No hope. You, you can't rescue yourself out of it. It's just... Continuing on the path of darkness. But God didn't leave us there. Isaiah 9 says, Those that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those that dwell in the the land of the shadow of death, on them has the light shined. And light, as often in scripture, is portrayed here as hope, as truth, uh, as salvation. Colossians 1, 13 says, God delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And he includes this word marvelous at the end to remind us that God's salvation, the hope that God provides is wonderful. It's amazing. It, when we contemplate it, <clears throat> it's just staggering. The thought that God rescued us from sin. When you get a new vehicle or a new home, Typically, what do you want to do? You want to tell people about it. You would like people to come out and look at your vehicle or come over and and visit your home. Or when you have good news, you you are married or you have a baby, you want to share that news with someone. Uh, It's exciting to you and you want to share it with others. And when Christ has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, we should feel the same wanting to tell people about this miracle that God has worked in our lives to be an, an advertisement, an ambassador for what God has done for us. And what God offers through the gospel is, it's real, it's not a gimmick. And you go to your favorite fast food restaurant, and up on the screen perhaps is an advertisement for the burger or the sandwich, and it is... Portrayed as perfection, isn't it? Uh, the meat is juicy and cooked well and all the condiments are in the right place and uh, the bun is fresh and the sesame seeds are perfectly spaced out on the top. And then what's handed to you over the counter doesn't always match what is advertised. That's not true with what God offers. When we are advertisements for what God has done for us, when we can proclaim what God has done in our lives, what we are offering to people is real. It it really works. It really changes lives. It's not going to turn out empty. It is real. It works. And God has offered this to everyone. And God can change the hardest of hearts. Uh, God's God's truth, the gospel is never outdated, never depletes, it never runs out. Uh, it's never not quite enough. Oh, this situation's just too hard. God can help some people, but not you. No, God's grace is available to every person and every situation, and anybody can turn to Christ. And that change is described in verse ten, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Uh, Both of these contrasts are drawn from the book of Hosea, the first two chapters. And and you might recall uh, that God called Hosea to name his children particular things that were going to underline the truths that God wanted his people to know. And one of the daughters was to be called, No mercy. And one of the sons, Not my people. And then later in Hosea 2, at the end of that chapter, God says, I will have mercy on her that has not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. And there's a contrast here. And you see it in verse 10. Which in time past were not a people. There are no spiritual family. No spiritual belonging. A sense of emptiness and loneliness and no purpose in the world. That describes us before Christ. But now we are the people of God. And we have a spiritual family. We are God's special possession. And we have, it's amazing to think about that we have a personal connection to the most amazing and powerful person in all of history. We can't get the president on the phone, but we have direct access to God. We We are now the people of God. The second contrast, which had not obtained mercy. Before salvation, there was no mercy. We were on the path for eternal punishment with no hope of getting off that path. But now have obtained mercy. Uh, God withheld what we deserved and has provided forgiveness and all the blessings that come with salvation. Uh, This is just describing the incredible change that God makes in the lives of people. That once you were condemned and now you're forgiven. Once you were an outcast and now you have personal access to the king. And once you were hopeless, but now you're chosen. Uh, you you once were God's enemy, and now you belong to God. And when we seriously contemplate what God has done, how could we do anything other than share that truth with others around us? Could you put yourself for a moment in the shoes of a first-century leper? You are an outcast from society. You can't get together with your family because you may spread the disease. And here are family gatherings, uh, birthdays and funerals and weddings, and you are not welcome. Uh, You can't go give someone a hug that is close to you. There's no work available for you in order to try to survive. You're just headed towards death and and pain, and there's no hope for change. There's no solution. There's no doctor. uh, There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And then here comes Jesus, and he reaches out his hand, and with one touch he heals you. And now your life is the total opposite. Now you, you have family, you have health, you have community, you... You have opportunities you never had before. Your entire life has been changed. How would you probably respond? You would tell everybody the story. We're, we're naturally storytellers. We like to tell people if something good happened to us, And you would go and tell everyone. And you'd also probably have a, a burning desire to do, to do something out of thanks to the one who healed you, not because you owe a debt, uh, you can't ever repay what Christ has done, but just in response to live in thanks for what Christ has done for you. Imagine that here you, you saw Christ face to face and he saved you from sin. And you, you could say, thank you so much for rescuing me. What do you want me to do? And Christ says, this right here, I want you to obey this. And wouldn't the right response be, of course. Well, what else could I do besides obey what God has told me to do and to share that truth with others? And, and then that leads to the transition here to verse 11 because whatever God expects of us, whatever comes next before we get there, it can't be too much. It can't be uh, God is just expecting too much of me. If you, If we are genuinely thinking of what God has done and the status that He's given us and how He has rescued us from sin, then whatever God says here and elsewhere in Scripture uh, is never too high of a standard for us to be following. So then in verse 11, He's going to go here to the way that He wants us to live. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And here, uh, Peter is um, calling them strangers and pilgrims. They probably are in reality. Verse 1 of this book calls them strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So physically, they are strangers uh, scattered probably from Rome. But here it's more a spiritual sense. They are not at home in the world. Uh, They don't fit in in the world anymore because they are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And because of that, then what's temporal can't receive all their attention and and all of their time. Uh, And uh, we are surrounded by people in this world who have no desire to honor God because they're not part of God's family. And because of that, we we don't fit in and and we shouldn't fit in. We are strangers and pilgrims. Uh, But there is a great temptation to lessen God's standards, to feel more at home in the world, and so Peter is going to to encourage us or warn us against that. And we have to remember that that we are different because God has saved us and expects us to live differently. So the command here in verse eleven: because we're strangers and pilgrims, because of what God has done for us, abstain from fleshly lusts. Uh, abstain as this idea of resisting, avoiding something. First Thessalonians four uses it. Abstain from fornication. First Thessalonians five, 5, abstain from all appearance of evil. It means to avoid at every cost. Stay as far away as possible. If you had a severe peanut allergy, very severe, like it would send you to the hospital, how would you act around almost any type of food? Extremely cautiously. You don't want anything that might have that, even a trace of it in there. Uh, We had a situation at our church where a a visitor at a funeral ate a piece of cake and did not realize there was peanut butter in it, and the ambulance had to be called. Abstaining is not dabbling in. It's not enjoying a little bit of it. It's total staying far away because you know the danger that it causes. And what are we supposed to abstain from? Fleshly lusts. Uh, Lust by itself can be neutral. Uh, Sometimes it's translated desire in a positive way, but when it has the word fleshly here, uh, it's very clear from that in the context that these are negative lusts, desires that dishonor the Lord. Fleshly would be after the flesh, the old man, because you and I still have a sin nature, and that sin nature is attracted uh, to doing what dishonors God. And by the way, each of us is individually unique in that way. And so a sin that holds no attractiveness to you, could be very tempting to someone down the row from you. And all of us have different temptations, Uh, but it's all wrapped up here in fleshly lusts. This would include, there there are lists found throughout scripture, Galatians five has one, but none of them are exhaustive. Uh, Galatians five says the works of the flesh are these, and then lists about a dozen different types of sin. And then uh, interestingly at the end, Uh, says, and such like, things like this. And you'll find that in several lists of sins, which just serves to point out that Scripture is not exhaustive. We don't go to Scripture and say, well, I don't find this listed, so it's probably fine. God says things like this and not being conformed to the world. Uh, And so all of that falls under this category of fleshly Lust and God's desire for us is to abstain, to say no. And this is totally in contrast to society. Society says to be yourself, right? Be your true self. Just let let who you are come out. Don't say no to yourself. Live your own truth, whatever that is. Uh, there's no right and wrong. Whatever you think is right is right for you. And God says no. Abstain. From fleshly lusts. Why would God want us to do this? Well, first, back in verse 9, because God wants a holy priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, Holiness is tied to abstaining from fleshly lusts. And that if you're trying to share the gospel with someone, and here is some blatant sin that is obvious to everyone around you, the gospel is undermined by that. You have undercut the opportunity to share what God has done in your life. But another reason is given here. Uh, besides holiness, fleshly lusts, the end of verse 11, war against the soul. They war against your soul like a soldier on the battlefield who's intent on victory. James 4.1 uh, uses the same word, lust, that war in your members. And this is reminding us that we, we can't fall into the trap of thinking That we can indulge just a little. That I can handle a little sin. I I can think about this as long as I don't do it. Or I can watch this as long as I won't do that myself. Or I can read this as long as I wouldn't actually say those words. Uh, That sin is at war against the soul. And that the devil would love nothing more than to take you down and to make you useless to God, And we're not limited here to what we might call vices in our world, uh, uh, very serious sins, at least in the sense that they have serious consequences in this world, uh, like immorality or drunkenness or drug addiction. Uh, don't limit your, your thinking to that. Think of something like the love of money. 1 Timothy 6 says, Those that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men and destruction and perdition. Loving money is a fleshly lust that wars against your soul and wants to destroy your spiritual uh, profitability to God. How about the tongue? James chapter 3. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Uh, y- your speech, uh, there are temptations to. Uh, All kinds of things that fall into this category of fleshly lusts that war against your soul. And you're engaged in a spiritual battle. Your your sin nature wants you to succumb. And in that moment, what God wants you to do is remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you. What God has rescued you from and who he has made you. And By the way, that word war there in verse 11 is in in the present tense means that this is just not like one battle that you had early in your life and now you're done and you'll never have to worry about it again. This is regular. We know that from experience, don't we? That the the battle against sin is a regular battle and we must regularly regularly remind ourselves of what God has done for us. We have a child that is very tempted by food. And Likes, if it's laying out, likes to take some that wasn't supposed to be taken and maybe even open the fridge. And there was a period, this was a couple years ago now, where we put a sign on the fridge and the sign said, say no. Now, that, that, that was trying to get to the heart of the issue. Like, this is your decision and you, it's a strong pull and a strong temptation. But in the moment, what's the right choice? You decide, I can't give in to doing the wrong thing. It makes me think of uh, one of my friends. I was over at their house years ago, and their dad had on the top of the TV a, a little plaque somebody had made. said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Laying right on top of the TV, a, a regular reminder that the battle against sin it is difficult and it is ongoing all the time. We face a variety of temptations. Why, why would we not listen to music that dishonors the Lord? Because he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, why would we avoid things that are worldly? Because we were, once we're not a people, but now we're the people of God. Uh, When the temptation comes uh, to do something else besides gathering with God's people, because our to-do list is long, why why would we resist the temptation? Because we're part of a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, and God expects us to live in a certain way. On more than one occasion, I've uh, had the experience of finding something interesting to watch on a streaming service, that started out fine, uh, interesting, engaging, uh, a good plot, interesting characters, and for a period of time, perhaps even a few episodes, uh, nothing that was a concern. And then something arises. But you're already into the story. You already want to know what happens next. And what is God expecting of us as his people? That we look with a serious mind at sin and say, fleshly lust wants to war against my soul and destroy me. And God has rescued me from sin. And I'm going to say, no, I want to abstain as this verse says. And finally, this morning, verse 12, uh, this leads into uh, the, the uh, impact this makes on other people. Verse 12 <coughs> says having your conversation honest among the gentiles a conversation is a word that in the 17th century meant the word meant conduct today it means talking to somebody else i'd encourage you when you read through if you see the word conversation replace it with conduct or behavior in your mind because that's the idea there's one exception in philippians chapter 3 where it means citizenship Uh, but in every other case it means conduct and behavior and Peter uses this word, uh, I think, eight times in his two epistles. Here, your conduct, your behavior, is supposed to be honest or good, excellent, morally right uh, uh, among the Gentiles, who are the uh, the correlation here is the unbelievers, uh, those who would like them would like you to join them in sin, those who are observing the way that you live, uh, and. Even that word having at the beginning of the verse is a present tense, it's a regular you're regularly putting on a conduct or a lifestyle, a behavior that is a good example to others. And then there's a pattern here that's very interesting uh, as the verse continues. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, so there's the first part, God or unbelievers disparage God's people. Speaking against, they're speaking evil, they're slandering God's people, uh, trying to paint what's righteous as evil and what's evil as righteous. So, this happened in the first century. Uh, this is why Nero could blame the burning of Rome on the Christians because they were widely reviled in that society. And it happens in our day. If you stand for God's truth, you're going to be reviled. Uh, you just go and try to post something online that Upholds God's truth and see what happens. You are going to be reviled and disparaged. You're going to be viewed as intolerant and narrow minded. If you support God's plan for marriage, one man and one woman for life, you're going to be viewed as intolerant and disparaged. Uh, If you try to raise your children, as Scripture says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're going to be criticized as perhaps overbearing or brainwashing your kids or even abusive. Uh, In in many different areas, unbelievers revile and disparage God's people. But the verse doesn't stop there. It also tells us in the next phrase, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, we'll pause there, This, this part is telling us that even though they are disparaging and reviling God's people, they're also watching. They're observing. They see the good works that you do, uh, the right things that you are doing. This is the idea of an eyewitness, uh, somebody who is regularly observing your life and noticing something different. Uh, and we, we, see, we see this in particular for people who trust in Christ as an adult, where there's just a uh, very clear change in their life. But this, this is true for all of God's people. And when you see good works, You don't have to think necessarily. It's not always taking a meal to someone or serving in a ministry. Those are involved. You know what a good work also might be? Keeping your mouth closed when you feel like saying something out of line. That's a good work. And other people notice that. And they think, oh, that's different. Nobody I know does that. Everybody I know would have said something. But this person didn't. Or they said something that was kind. In, in response. And so unbelievers are observing, watching the good works that God's people do. And that brings us to the last phrase in verse 12. When they're beholding this, they may. the word may there is important. doesn't mean they will, not every unbeliever, but some may glorify God in the day of visitation. A visitation here is the idea of overseeing an authority who comes to oversee, to check on what is going on. Like when you go downstairs to see if your kids are actually doing the right thing. And if they are, then there might be some commendation. And if they're not, then there might be some consequences. That, that's the idea is that God is going to visit and he's either going to bring mercy or judgment based on your response to him. And this is saying that some unbelievers, not all, but some may, because they've observed the good works of God's people, when God visits, they're going to glorify God. And the the passage seems to indicate genuine conversion. Uh, This is a little different idea than Philippians 2, which says, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, that everyone's going to acknowledge God. But here, these people, because of, their, of, of the good works of God's people, are actually glorifying God, seems to indicate that they actually turned to Christ. That some, somebody saw what you were doing and the way that you lived, and even though they were part of this group that disparaged God's people, your testimony drew them to Christ. Can we contemplate perhaps what this might look like? And, and we could come up with just a number of examples. Maybe it's friends who pressure you to go out with them after work and go and drink with them, and you refuse over and over. And initially they disparage you. Come on, don't you know how to have some fun? But they were watching, and they watch over time and realize your life wasn't wrecked by that. And this other co-workers was. And your marriage wasn't wrecked by alcohol compared to someone else they know. And it might be that somebody turns to Christ because of your example. Or we could think maybe in the area of money. Uh, You give regularly to the church and you, you follow what God says about tithing And people might disparage you for that. Come on, you're wasting money. Well, don't expect me to help you out. If you're going to give all that money to the church, when you get in a hard place, I'm not bailing you out. But then people watch that over time and realize there's something different about this person. And someone might turn to God on account of your testimony. Or maybe you're mistreated by someone. Uh, That's a common uh, problem uh, throughout history, but... Uh, in our world today, it's very trendy to cut people off out of bitterness, decide you're going to have nothing to do with someone because they hurt you. We'll label them as toxic, and I don't want to have them in my life. But when God's people don't go that direction, and they avoid bitterness, and they forgive, and they show love, and they turn the other cheek, people notice. People observe that. And that is a testimony for the gospel, and maybe then an opportunity arises and somebody says, there's something different about you. And you say, why? Well, it's not me. Christ changed me. He brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light, and let me tell you about it, because he can do the same thing for you. Now, this verse doesn't describe it, but we can uh, uh, d- imply what the opposite would be. What if we don't have an honest conversation or lifestyle Among the Gentiles, among unbelievers, we lose that opportunity to share the gospel. Here we are at a family gathering, and uh, uh, there's people there that we know and we love, and we want them to turn to Christ. And now everybody is discussing the latest blockbuster movie, and we join in talking about how much we enjoy it. And somebody maybe is thinking, "I know what's in that movie. I thought this person said they're a Christian." And they watch that, and they listen to that, and maybe your entire opportunity to share the gospel now has been watered down or negated completely. Maybe we we get angry at someone in our family, and we lose control, and we give in to anger and selfishness, and somebody's watching, and now there's a missed opportunity to have an honest conversation among unbelievers. Uh, This goes both ways here. God's plan for his people because uh, of what he's done for us because of the status he's given us uh, described in verses 9 and 10 and uh, he wants us to live a certain way he wants us to abstain from fleshly lust like verse 11 says but there's a purpose for that and not just for our own spiritual well-being but for the testimony that God's people can have towards other people and this is real that this works out in real life and Uh, I remember a book that I read a number of years ago. Uh, There there was a lady um, at Syracuse University. She's an English professor, and uh, she was an unbeliever. Uh, The the book is Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And uh, this lady named Rosaria Butterfield was in a a same-sex relationship, and a pastor reached out to her and invited her over to dinner. And she came over and they, 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 this pastor was never compromising on the truth, uh, never accepting the lifestyle. They just showed love to her, and they engaged her in conversation, and uh, they asked about her life, and they discussed Scripture and the gospel. And over, it was quite a period of time, the Lord worked in her life and brought her to himself, and she trusted Christ as Savior. Uh, and that is, is a, a great example of this pattern someone who disparaged God's people and viewed them as intolerant, but saw how true Christians can live and the good works that that God's people can do as a result of his work in their lives, and then she glorified God and turned to Christ. This is is, uh, both an encouraging and a convicting passage for us, the way that God wants us to live because of what he's done for us on the cross. Let's think of that as we uh, close in prayer and uh, ask that God would give us opportunities. uh, Opportunities to remember what he's done for us, to avoid sin and temptation, and to be a testimony to those we come in contact with. Let's pray.